0: morning. How's everybody doing? Awesome. Good. Uh, We promised you guys a financial update on the end of the year. So before we get started this morning, I want to do that. Now, does anybody remember how much we projected to end the year with in our budget? It's a great pop quiz. It was $190,000 originally, and then we adjusted that up to $195,000. We ended the year with $207,000. So we came in well above, well above. December we brought in around $30,000 in giving. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, We were projecting to end the year just slightly in the red. And we ended the year almost $9,000 in the black despite $50,000 of unexpected expenses. It's amazing. So uh, God is good. You guys are amazing. That's where we're at. So we're off to a really good start, really good start uh, going into the, uh, 2024. So uh, anybody, since I'm playing guess what I'm thinking, anybody want to guess what we're studying today? It's Romans. Who knew? <laughs> Who could have thought we'd be studying Romans? One of the greatest books ever written. The book that uh, lit Martin Luther on fire that started the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. Really, really cool. Anybody know what comes next for us? We're almost done in Romans. It's the book that Martin Luther hated the most in all the New Testament, the one that he wasn't quite sure belonged in the Bible. James. James. Back to back, Romans and James. So I'm excited about that. So that'll start in February. And I, you know, we promised Jonah, Jonah's coming. We just decided that Jonah would fit in better going into the fall semester. So Jonah will be August. Yes, but J- James is next, starting in February. So I want to start this morning with a question. Uh, how many of you remember that point in your life when you started to sincerely ask, for, maybe for the first time, why am I here? What's the point? What's the purpose? And you started trying to find something that was actually worth living for. Maybe even something worth dying for, something worth giving your life to. You guys remember a time in your life like that? Usually maybe middle into high school, college, early 20s, something like that for a lot of us. Happens for a lot of us. And that search for meaning and purpose and something worth living for, that's the fuel behind all kinds of big decisions that we make when we're young, like joining the military or I'm going to go travel abroad or I'm going to go on the mission field for a couple years. Anybody ever do anything like that for those types of reasons? A lot of people do. And then you give it enough time and what happens? With enough time, life starts to go on and you realize, well, maybe that stuff, living at the edge of things with my hair on fire wasn't as exciting and glamorous and worthwhile as I thought it would be. Maybe the real adventure in life is to start a family so you find a cute boy or a cute girl, and you settle down, and you start a family. And that's exciting at first, until what? Until, what did you say? Until bills. (laughs) Life gets hard. Life gets hard. And then about seven years into marriage, give or take a year, you hit some kind of crisis. That's a pretty typical time frame. For a marriage to hit a crisis, about seven years. They call it the seven-year itch for a reason. And maybe if you're old enough, you also get it conflated with what's called a midlife crisis, Right? Where you're tempted to go off looking for that spark again, that sense of, have I wasted, like, have I wasted my life? Have I made the right decisions? Am I doing the right thing? What matters? Why, am I, why are we doing what we're doing? Why am I doing? What is, what's the point? What's the purpose? Does that sound familiar? If it's not something you've gone through personally, maybe it's something that you've observed other people going through, right? Friends, family, hit a point in their life where it's just like, man, I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm done. I need to find something worth living for, something exciting. How many of you if, are one of those people who got up today and just like you knew who you are and why God puts you here and what your purpose and what your mission in life is and you got up excited about that? How many of you, if you're being honest, feel more adrift some days, like a cog in a machine, like you don't quite know what the point is? This morning we're talking about mission and ministry and purpose because the Apostle Paul is going to start talking to us about his mission, about his ministry, about his purpose, why he's here, what he's about. For the Christian, there are two big purposes that we all have. There are two mandates that God gave us, two great missions that we have in common. The first came at the beginning of humanity, when God made us. In Genesis chapter one, God gives us what is called the cultural mandate. This is our blessing, it's our birthright, it's what we're called to. And instinctively, by nature, it's sort of what we're programmed to do. It goes deep down into our bones. You can't really get it out of us. The only way to get it out of us is try to deprogram us or brainwash it out of us through like 12 years of education and a bunch of crappy entertainment and then college. And eventually, maybe you can get it out of us. But it goes deep down and we all come back to it instinctively because it's how God made and designed us. And it's in Genesis one twenty eight. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We're designed to be kings and queens of creation. We're designed to rule over all that God made in the physical realm. We are beings that are both physical and spiritual. We are God's mediators between heaven and earth. That's cool. That's big. And that's what our first parents broke when they fell in the garden. They handed their crowns to the serpent. But that instinct and that command is still there. And it's something that we still ought to fulfill and ought to try to fulfill. And naturally try to fulfill. But we just get frustrated in our efforts and our attempts. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But now because of our sin there will be pain in childbearing. Subdue the earth and exercise dominion, but now there will be thorns and thistles to make it hard and challenging, futile. It won't come easy. It'll come with pain and suffering. But that's still why we get married and start families and try to mark out some territory for ourselves, why we try to find our skill set and our way of contributing to the great process of exercising God's dominion over the earth. And while it can sound, when you put it that way, glorious and beautiful, it can often work out in a really mundane sort of way. Especially when our version of that can feel really uninspiring, or maybe even inhuman. And that's part of the struggle that we have today. We live in a world where fruitfulness is hated and attacked, and so is the dominion of man over the earth. So is the divine glory of our dominion. We're made to build a legacy for God and for ourselves. But things feel really futile really fast, right? And then into the mess of sin and futility and frustration comes Jesus. And he gives us another mandate. He's the second Adam, a creator of a new humanity, and he gives us a renewed mission and purpose that goes side by side with the old one. We're not only to go into the world and subdue the creation, we're also to go into the world and reclaim it for our king, for Jesus And to spread his heavenly dominion. Matthew 28. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the work that the church has done for the past 2,000 years. This is what we've done. This is why this church is here. Why we still, to this day, continue to plant churches and send missionaries to unreached places. And why we continue to get married and make babies who become disciples and demonstrate the proper order of God's creation. We each have our part to play in the mission, and it can look very differently for each of us. We're not all the Apostle Paul, and that's a good thing, because Paul can't go and do Paul things like planting church after church after church and city after city after city, unless there are churches full of people with different gifts who are prepared to equip him and to send him and to build and encourage him to go do those types of things. And if there aren't leaders that rise up in those churches and can lead those churches, he can't leave and go plant another church. He can't be free to go keep fulfilling his mission. So what does that mean for you? It means that finding your place and your part your role in how you serve and build the local church, this church, is your part in the ongoing 2,000-year-old mission of Jesus. Not being a consumer, not being a passive participant, but actively growing and learning how to serve and build up the local church. So use the gifts and graces that God has given you so that we, this church, can be another link in the chain going back 2,000 years all the way to 12 ordinary men who just followed Jesus around and listened to everything he had to say. And so that we can then pass that on. So that we can be a link in the chain going back and going forward in time, passing on what we have learned and been taught to others who don't know Jesus, who turn and pass it on to the next generation. So that as long as the world turns, we're part of the story of what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do as he prepares a people for himself. Okay, so Romans 15. This is where we're at. This is the context. We're at a transitional point in this letter. We have talked about sin and God and the gospel and our relationship with God, what God has done for us. We've talked about the Christian life and what it means to live our lives as a living sacrifice. What it means to live a life full of love, putting one another first, what God is doing in us. And now in the final part of this letter, we're turning to talk about the mission, what God is doing in the church, what God is doing and how we work together to encourage what's good and deal with what's bad and see God's kingdom and uh, expand and grow together, what God is doing through us. So Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So Paul begins this section with praising the church at Rome. He says, you guys are full of goodness. You're good people. You're filled with all knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. Does that sound like the Paul who wrote this letter to you? You guys are filled with all goodness. You're good people. You've got all the knowledge you need. You're great. What's going on? How many of you remember how this book started? Does that sound like the thing he would have said at the beginning of this letter? What's the kind of thing he would say at the beginning of this letter? we got like three chapters of just like sinners, unrighteous, Failures. I think you just pick, like, you open the first three chapters and just kind of put your finger down and read, right? Like this section right here, which admittedly is the most intense one, but still, this is how we begin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, in the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's talking about you. <laughs> and we come to this passage and he says, I'm satisfied about you that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one. What is going on here? What's happened? What's happened is he's turned to acknowledge that the gospel has changed and transformed the lives of these people. From the inside out. They're not perfect, but they're not what they once were. They're not perfect, but they've made progress. And he's pointing that out. This is a really, really important thing for us to do. For ourselves, for the people we love, for the people around us, for our kids. It's easy for us to fixate on God's standard of perfection and never stop to take encouragement from the progress that He has given us. We're talking about the work of the church here. We're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us, in and through the church. Stop and think for a minute about how far you've come since you first met Jesus. Are you perfect? Of course not. But you've made progress, haven't you? You're not what you once were. This Easter, we'll celebrate three years of having services together as a church. We are far from perfect, but we as a church have made a lot of progress, haven't we? We've grown. We've grown together. It's important that we hold high God's standard of perfection that we acknowledge we're not yet what we ought to be. Not even close, right? Right. It's also equally important that we spend time reflecting on all that God has done and acknowledge that we are also not what we once were. Not even close. We may feel much closer to what we once were than to what we ought to be. That's true. We still are much closer to what we once were than what we ought to be. But if we're constantly fixated on perfection, on how far we have yet to go, and we never stop to appreciate how far we've come, if we never stop to appreciate the progress, all we'll see is that we always fall short and that there's always more. Which is true. But we can do that in a way where we end up denying the good work of what God has done for us and in us and through us. And then what happens? What happens is we lose heart and we lose hope. And we stop believing that God can change us. We stop believing that God wants to change us. And we stop believing that God actually does change us and transform us. And if we do that, we can develop a critical spirit that will cripple us and blind us to all that God has already done. And that is profoundly ungrateful and unbiblical. Throughout the Scriptures, God commands His people constantly to set up memorials and reminders of what He has done for them. He commands them to rehearse and repeat and remind themselves to keep going back and remembering what He has done. And to tell that story of what He has done for the next generation. How are we supposed to do that if we never stop to reflect on what he's done? On the actual growth and progress that he's given us? If we think it's godly and spiritual to sort of always be downplaying the miracles of transformation that he's accomplished in our lives before our eyes. Some of you have come from dark places and it's good to stop and reflect on that. And you know what? Your kids need to know that someday. They need to know what God has done for you, how far He's brought you. In the Bible, the people of God make their worst mistakes when they prove to have short memories, when they refuse to reflect on what God has done with gratitude, with awe, with wonder. The people of Israel, as they come out of Egypt, are so quick. To forget the plagues, to forget the miracles, to forget that God parted a sea for them to walk through on dry land. Instead, they're thinking about what they need to eat. So God makes bread come from heaven, and they think that's for a while that's great. And then they're like, "This is just bread. Where's the meat?" And it got since quail. It's never enough. It's never enough. And so, what happens is they bring themselves under God's judgment because they simply will not stop and take a step back and look at what God has done for them. Why? They want that promised land of perfection and they want it now. They want it all. They want it fast, they want it cheap, they want it easy. They're so fixated on the end that they take for granted how far they've come. They can't see the progress. So they lose heart and they lose hope. And instead of being grateful, they become embittered. We can get this way with God when it comes to ourselves. When we get frustrated with how far we feel we have to go. When we see and feel all our old sins still present with us. We feel like we just can't seem to heal or grow past certain sins or temptations. What we need to do is to stop and reflect not only on how far we have to go, but on how far we've come. We can also get this way when it comes to our relationships and the people we love. We can get so fixated on a standard or on a bar or on on perfection that all we see are the shortcomings and never the progress, never the growth. We can get fixated on how far our marriage still has to go or how far our kids still have to go and miss what God's done, how far we've come since we started. We miss the growth and the milestones. You see this a lot, you know, in all kinds of places, big and small. You see it a lot in youth sports or any place really where parents are tempted to compete with each other through their kids, right? It doesn't have to be sports, it can be grades, it can be music, it can be dance, gymnastics, drama, it doesn't matter. But for example, on the baseball field, who's the one kid on the field that the coach can't ever see any progress or growth in often? It's his own son, Right? If all these kids from all over the place and one hit from Johnny over there. That's a cause of celebration. He makes a great play in the field. That's amazing. Way to go, Johnny. But the coach's son, well, he's just expected to hit the ball every time. He's expected to make all the plays. And the only thing we can see and focus on and fixate on are the mistakes and the failures. The time he made an error, the time he struck out, it's all the ways he falls short. There's a difference between accountability and a destructive sort of criticism. Accountability keeps the bar high, it doesn't make excuses, but it sees failure and mistakes in the context of growth and progress. And destructive criticism sees nothing but failure, and a type of failure that's really easy to take personally. Who are the people in our lives we're least likely to step back and reflect on growth and progress in? It's the people we want the most from. It's the people we expect the most from. It's the people whose failures most frustrate our own selfish desires or fracture our fragile egos. The dad coach who's always riding his son is not concerned about making his son a better man or a better ball player. It son's not even a person to him. His son is an extension of himself and he only exists to be a reflection of the greatness of dad. So his son's failures hurt his ego. His son's failures are seen as my failures and that hurts my pride. And that's the issue. Not the growth of the son, this person made in God's image into a better man. In marriage, the husband who can never step back and celebrate the growth or progress of his wife is not fixated on what he can give her, but only on what he wants to take from her on what he wants that he's still not getting. He's a devouring monster who can never be satisfied. He's a vampire. He wants to take. He always needs more. And the wife, similarly, who can never see her husband's shortcomings or failures or weaknesses, in the context of his sacrifices and his strengths and his gifts and his growth is the same kind of devouring monster. Nothing's ever enough, but a little context, a little reflection, a little self-awareness, a little bit of gratitude, a shift in focus from perfection to progress, from taking to giving, goes a long way. With our kids, with our marriages, with other people in the church. So how about us as a church? We have a long way to go. But look at how far we've come. When I look at you guys, you know what I see? I see a church that has grown so much over the past couple of years. Not just in breadth and numbers, but in depth. We're about ready to finish the book of Romans. Yeah, you know how many churches never even attempt the book of Romans? Why? It's a hard book. It's got hard things in it. Really hard things in it. How many of you have really had your view of God challenged since we studied this book? It's got tough stuff in it. And as we've gone through it, do you realize uh, how our sermons have changed? When we started having services, our sermons were 25, 30 minutes long. Do you remember those days? And we've had a lot of sermons in Romans that have been over an hour. That's <laughs> uh, not just like, "Oh yeah, that's great. We're awesome. And we let's have every sermon be over an hour." I don't believe in sermons over an hour. I promise, generally speaking, <laughs> I don't think that's good. We can only handle so much sustained concentration. We're human, right? And we got to get out of the gym. And we want this service to be a place where anybody can come for the first time and feel like they understand what's going on, okay? At the same time, look at us. Look at you guys. Look at how we've grown. Look at how you've grown in goodness and in knowledge and in your ability to instruct each other, to help each other, to teach each other, to encourage each other. If you belong to the Holy Spirit, if you've been adopted into God's family, if you're committed to walking in God's ways, you're growing in goodness and knowledge. That means you have things to share. And it doesn't mean that you're all called to stand up and preach or be like Paul and go out to the front lines of the mission field, but it does mean that you have something to offer. You have something to give your brother and sister. You. Encouragement, hope, maybe at times correction. So he's telling this church, look, you guys are filled with all knowledge. And let me tell you, if you've been with us through the book of Romans and you've paid attention and I've actually done my job, you guys know what you need to know. He continues, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay? He's like, look, the point of writing this big letter is not to patronize you and pretend like you don't understand these things. I know many of you do. We all need reminders. We all need reminders. Now, how many of you, as we went through Romans, were hearing a lot of things for the first time? Learning new things. That's you. That's great. I hope so. That's what we want. The church at Rome wasn't new, though. Many of them had heard the sort of things Paul wrote in his letter before. And some of you aren't new. Some of you have been believers a long time. Maybe as we went through Romans, you didn't learn so much as you were reminded of things that we always need to be reminded of. The longer you've been a believer, the more you realize how much you need to constantly be reminded of the same basic things. Why? Because it's the basic simple truths that change and transform us. Sometimes it's the basic simple truths that are the hardest to get to seep down deep into our bones. The most profoundly transformative thing you will ever hear as a Christian is that Jesus' death and burial and resurrection Unite you to Him in such a way that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. Nothing. It's simple. It's basic. It's profound. And the deeper that truth gets inside of you and the more hold it has on your life, the more free you become to live your life to God alone because you just, just nothing else matters. God loves me, nothing can change that. I don't have to worry about what anybody thinks. I don't have to fear anybody or anything. I don't need anything from anyone. I have everything I need in God. But who here feels 100% like you are so freed by the love of God that you never have to care what anybody thinks? That you never have to live to please anybody but God. Anybody feel that way all the time, 100%? We all struggle, we all forget, we all doubt, we all have to be reminded and reminded and reminded again. And we have to have God work and open our hearts to really receive and embrace even the most simple and basic of truths. So we need to be reminded because it's daily work, it's fight. We still live our lives often crippled by guilt and shame. We still have parts of our lives where we have sins that we just can't shake and we need to be reminded so that we can be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, he says. So we can grow. So we can grow. So that's what we've done. We have learned and been reminded of simple truths. And we've grown. And we don't just uh, need to be reminded of those transformative truths that we're to believe. We need to be reminded how to live, how to love, what that looks like. That we are in fact called by God to love as we have been loved by Him. Because while we are, as He says, filled with goodness and knowledge by the Holy Spirit, we're also at war with our old nature, with our old man, with the old us, and all the old sinful habits and patterns that would try to dominate and control us and bring us back to what we once were. Okay, so here's Paul, and he's writing. And he has a gift, a special grace, and he knows it. And he says so, and he's not ashamed of it. It's an ability to remind and build and encourage God's people so that they grow. And so he put that gift to use in this letter. It's like he said at the beginning in Romans chapter 1, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Okay? He knows if he can get to Rome, he can be an encouragement to them. And he knows that this church will be an encouragement to him too. And he also knows that he can send a promise of that encouragement simply by using his gifts to write a letter and remind them of what God has done and what God is doing and what God has called them to do. And so we get the book of Romans. It's bold. It's strong. He knows that this is how God has gifted him and how God uses him to build up the body. So he writes it. This is his mission and this letter is proof of that. And God still works through the teaching and preaching of his word this way, especially through men he's called and set apart and especially gifted to do that sort of thing. So who did the work? Was it Paul? Is it the preacher? It's Jesus. It's the word of Jesus delivered by men that Jesus has set apart and equipped to preach it. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Preacher stands up and says, I'm proud of my work for God. Is that a red flag for you? It's what he says. He's proud of his work for God. But he qualifies it. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Okay, here's what he's saying. I have seen Jesus at work in me and through me. I've seen what God does. you have to remember who Paul is. You have to remember where he came from. What was he? This is an actual Pharisee, the kind of person that Jesus was just relentless with, right? And he was an actual persecutor of the church. He traveled from city to city separating families and killing and imprisoning Christians. He was an evil person, the kind of person you should have nothing to do with. And then he met Jesus, and Jesus changed him. And Jesus gave him a gift and a mission and a calling. And Paul obeyed. And everywhere he went, he was met with opposition and pain and suffering, on one hand. And on the other hand, the power of God at work, changing and transforming lives in the midst of everything. So he's able to step back with a sort of godly pride and say, I am proud of my work in Christ because look at what Jesus has done. Look at all these pagan Gentiles who'd never even heard of God believing and obeying him, having their lives changed and transformed by him. Look at all of these churches all over the place. It's amazing. I go where I'm sent, I speak what I'm told, and I just get this front row seat to the miracle of God, transforming people who've never heard about Him. People who are hopeless and helpless, ensnared and in sin, trapped in despair. And that's the pain and the privilege of ministry. And the beauty is that we all get to share in that, one way or another. Maybe not like Paul. Maybe we're not frontline missionaries or pastors or church planners or preachers or teachers, but we all get to participate in the work of God in us and through us, in and through the gifts that he's given to us. And has God been at work in us and through us? Take a look around. Where'd this church come from? Think of all we've been through in such a short period of time. This is the work of Jesus. There's no other way to explain it. And I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of you. There's no other church I'd rather be serving. And I'm humbled to be a part of the work of Jesus in you. I hope you are too. We don't just get to be part of the work that Jesus has done for us, or the work that Jesus has done in us, we get to be part of the work that Jesus is doing through us and we are all part of it. There are people here today who are Christians because of somebody else in this room. There are people here this morning who have been helped and encouraged and given hope and strength in dark times because of other people in this room. Maybe some of that work has already gone on this morning. Every time we come together, we have an opportunity to be Jesus to one another, to show each other the love of Jesus, and to bear one another's burdens, and to encourage each other, and to pray with and for each other. This is the work of ministry. This is the work of the church. And it's something to be proud of. Not because we're so great, we're not proud of ourselves, we're proud of our God and the work that he has done for us, that he stoops down to work through us to do great and wonderful and miraculous things. We're able to step back and say, just look at what God has done. That's my God. That's the Jesus I love. That's the Jesus I love because he first loved me because he never stops loving me, and he never stops showing me his love through the things that he does. So look at all he's done, and look at all he's doing, and think of all he's still going to do. That is something worth boasting about. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul talking, and this is what he's saying. In my ministry, I have seen Jesus do amazing things. By my words, by my deeds, by the power of signs and wonders, all by the Spirit of God, not me, I've seen true wonders and true miracles. And what's the most wonderful miracle of all? That these pagans, these Gentiles... Who'd never heard of the Bible, who'd never heard of Jesus, who'd never heard of Yahweh. People who didn't know. They now know him and they've repented of their sins and they walk in obedience to him. God has brought these unbelievers to obedience and that's a miracle. An accomplishment of Jesus. And that's what all of his words and deeds and signs and wonders we see Paul perform in the book of Acts. That's what they're all about and that's what they're all for. This is the power of the Spirit of God. So do miracles still happen today? Look around. Power of the Spirit of God is at work in this place because lives are being transformed here in this place. Not by me, not by you. By God himself. Which is greater, to heal the blind or to forgive sins? Jesus already told us: It's to forgive sins. What's a greater miracle for the lame to walk, or for children from broken homes and abusive situations to grow up and meet God and repent of their sins and get married and start families and build a legacy for Jesus? Making the lame walks child's play? What's a greater miracle? to cleanse a leper or to see the faith pass faithfully from one generation to the next and to the next where you have in the same family grandparents and children and grandchildren worshiping the same God together. It's the power of God. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead who is at work in you. Three years ago, this church was a Bible study in my living room. Where were you three years ago? What were you doing? What was your life like? What's God done? And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named lest they build on someone else's foundation, But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Okay, this is Paul talking about his call, God's call on his life. His call is to go where people have never heard of Jesus, to tell them about Jesus, to start churches in those places that will make disciples of their friends and their family and their neighbors. We're a new church. We live in a community where many people have heard about Jesus, but not many people know Jesus and walk in his ways. Not many people follow him and obey him. Maybe some of you, God's calling to one day go to places where people have never heard. Maybe some of you, God will call to be part of starting new churches. But so long as you're here, so long as you're part of this church and this community, God's calling you to build up this body. God's calling you to love and care for one another, and God is calling you to love your friends and your family and your neighbors who don't know him the first great joy of the Christian life is learning what God has done for you. And the next great joy is seeing God begin to work in you. And the third is to see Jesus at work through you in the lives of other people. And we want all of that here. We want all of God's blessings for all of us. We want to see and experience all of God's power in our lives. Not just feeling free from the guilt of our sin, but seeing God transform our lives. But not just selfishly seeing God transform our lives and stopping there, but seeing God work through us to transform the lives of other people. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, we want you to know that he came. He lived a perfect life. He suffered and died on a cross to bear the guilt and sin of everybody who comes to him. And you can come to him today and you can trade your death for his life, your sin for his righteousness. And you can begin to watch him go to work in your life, making you new, changing you, healing your wounds, bearing your sins and sorrows, bearing your shame, filling your heart with love so that you can love others as he's loved you, giving you a new sense of meaning and purpose and something to actually live for. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, you should know that Jesus means to work in you to change you, and through you to bring others to Jesus who don't know him. So have faith for that work. Love people and talk to them about the one who bore your sins. Let them know what Jesus has done for you. As we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, remember that God is holy, God is perfect. You fall far short of that standard of perfection. Every one of us. But if you belong to Jesus, then Jesus has been at work in you. And if he's been at work in you, then you've grown and you've changed and you are not what you once were. Though you're still weak and fragile and frail and full of sin, you're not what you once were. And if that's you, if you can on the one hand look at and recognize the holiness and perfection of God and the depth of your sin and your need for his grace... And on the other hand, you can see that he's been at work in your life, changing you. And you can say, I I have a long way to go, but I am not what I once was. This table is for you. It's for everybody who's been baptized and belongs to Jesus and has given himself wholeheartedly to following Jesus and being part of the church so he can grow. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, or you're not committed to obeying and following him, If you're living in sin against your conscience, don't come to the table until you've first been reconciled to God through Jesus. Get right with God. Then come talk to us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you about next steps. Okay? Now, hear what the Bible says about this table. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance.